Shipwreck stories, storms at sea, our lore is filled with such stories and we're fascinated by them. 400 years ago, an English clergyman wrote such a story about a man who was determined to see the world and got way more than he bargained for. Most of you know about Lemuel Gulliver, at least about one of his adventures. He was cast upon the shore of a strange land named Lilliput where the inhabitants were tiny and Gulliver to them a huge giant. At least in years past, the story fascinated children seeing the tiny Lilliputians attempt to tie down giant Gulliver with what were to him mere threads. Most of us know only this much of the story, but Gulliver makes several ill-fated voyages and visits far stranger places. On one island, Lugnag, Gulliver hears a wild story about how some of the Lugnagians are born special. They're called the Struldbrugs, who are immortal. Well, Gulliver is wild with the desire to meet them, these special ones who live forever. But the Lugnagians scratch their heads and they seem puzzled at his desire to meet them. They don't seem duly impressed with this gift of immortality. But sure, they'll take him to meet a Struldbrug. Well, what gullible Gulliver didn't get even though the Straltbrugs have the gift of immortality, they don't have the gift of eternal youth. So they age and they age and they age with all the infirmities that come with age. They are of all people the most miserable. All of Gulliver's salivating to meet these most blessed of people is turned on its head. Gulliver's travels has so much fun exposing the foolishness of wise in his own eyes Gulliver. But it's not just Gulliver. The humorous storytelling is designed to help the reader see him or herself in the person of Gulliver, to own that many conclusions we jump to are foolishness, that the selfishness, pride, and prejudice we see in Gulliver also reside in us. The book is a satire. And so is the almost shipwreck story, the storm at sea story, the story of Jonah. Now, prophets certainly aren't perfect people in the Old Testament. No human being in the Old Testament is, but Jonah takes not perfect to a whole new level. And of course, as we read and ponder and sometimes even laugh, we should begin to see that one who needs one's eyes opened is not just Jonah. And in the process, we see three very eye-opening things about our God's gracious ways with man and woman. God speaks to Jonah to go to Nineveh with a warning from him about their great evil. Instead of walking east over land to Nineveh, Jonah sails west on the water to Tarshish, the end of the known world to the Israelites at that time. We start off thinking, uh-oh. But let me point out a thing in Jonah's favor, which leads to our first dive into something gracious about God. At least Jonah's honest. He sins boldly. When the sailors ask if he's the reason they're all in deep trouble, he admits he's fleeing the Lord, the God of heaven, maker of the sea and dry land. And maybe you're someone who says, okay, sometimes I feel more like Jonah than I'd like to admit. I don't always greet God's plans with a believing heart and a willing attitude. Is there no hope for me? Well, as we follow Jonah's bad behavior and even worse attitude, I hope that you can see that, yes, there's a lot of hope for you and for me because of God's ways with Jonah. So first thing to ponder, God is a respecter of our boundaries and in that is hope. What do I mean by that? You may have noticed that God, when we say no to him, does not violate our freedom to say no. 
When I spent a week in London some years back, staying near St. Paul's Cathedral, I got to wander into that magnificent building many times. And to my surprise and delight, that famous painting, Light of the World, was in there. You may have seen it. It depicts a serene Christ bearing a lantern and knocking on a door. The painter, William Holman Hunt, was envisioning Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you look closely at the painting, you'll see something interesting. There is no handle on the outside of the door. Jesus is knocking, but the ability to open the door is all at the prerogative of the one behind the door. You, me, Jonah. If we say no to him as Jonah did, he respects that. He knows that keeping the door closed to him isn't the best choice, but allows us to do that, to go our own way. Let's think about another story where a no is respected, the story of the prodigal son. The father allows the son to leave him and go to a far country, respects his no, and keeps on loving him. But of course, the son and we all can't avoid the consequences of our no, can we? Something that I see my grandchildren learning. They can choose to hit someone in their anger, but if they do, they know there will be a consequence. Do their parents love them less when the children say no? Well, of course not. Do the parents know that for their children's sake, they'll have to deliver a consequence? Yes. The writer to the Hebrew says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do parents love their children by allowing them to experience a consequence for obedience? Absolutely. Are the children trained by it? Well, that's every good parent's hope. The prodigal son, like Jonah, was honest. I'm leaving. I'm doing things my own way. And sometimes the story of Jonah is likened to the parable of the prodigal son. Some scholars even thinking that Jesus based his famous parable partly on Jonah. So God respects our no. We're not robots forced to say yes to him. And the parable of the prodigal son shows that God's love and mercy so far outlast our defiant no. Some of us are not like Jonah, who's forthright about his disobedience. Some of us have a hard time being honest with ourselves and with God. How can we get to that place of honesty with ourselves and God? We're more like the son in this following parable. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. We are the ones who say yes to God, but our actions speak no. We've likely all known people who say they want to change and yet never do. Many of us are those people ourselves. In the book Boundaries by Christian psychologists Henry Cloud and John Townsend, they tell the true story of a cheating husband. In group counseling sessions, he kept insisting that he wanted his marriage to work and that he just hated what he was doing. Finally, one of the counselors challenged him to admit that in reality, he really liked his sin. And although he said he loved God and wanted to live a holy life, that wasn't really the truth. 
They challenged him to give up the falsehood of telling himself that he was a Christian man who longed for holiness. He took up the challenge. His admissions scared him at first, but ultimately it led to change. And this is what Cloud and Townsend say in Boundaries. We say yes, but we act out no. God prefers honesty. We would be much better off if we would say an honest no to whatever God is asking, for the next step could be repentance. An honest no will lead us to the discovery of how destructive it is to say no to God into a real hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Honesty with God can look like this. Lord, I know you want me to do this, but I don't want to. I want my way. I can't change the way I feel and desperately need you to work in me. Help me, Lord, to want what you want. God can work with honest communication. When we admit to ourselves who we really are, a regret that comes wrapped in grace can enter our hearts, a godly sorrow, the kind that leads to repentance and change. When we own our no to God, only then is change possible. So back to Jonah. Did Jonah see how destructive to God was his initial no? We don't know, but probably not. We seldom do. All we know is that Jonah's no had consequences beyond his own life. The pagan sailors who worked hard to save him from a burial at sea. These men who in their compassion acted more like the God of Jonah than Jonah does. And yes, there's a bit of satire here. Almost lost their lives as a consequence of Jonah's no. And you know what? It's not just Jonah. Our no's often result in consequences far beyond just our own lives. Let's look now at a second source of hope for Jonah, God's sending of the big fish. Now, at first glance, the big fish doesn't seem like a hopeful development. People in the ancient world were in terror of the sea. To an Israelite, a storm at sea would be a reminder of the chaos that existed right at the beginning of the book of Genesis before God created light and land and life and sorted things out. Most ancient peoples didn't swim, and when they sailed, they kept close to the land. But maybe equally terrifying with the sea would be the great creatures of the deep. Maybe Jonah thought, great, I'll drown, and after a few terrifying moments, it'll be all over with. But God had other ideas. God's prophet is unwilling to do his will, but a huge fish who has only a fraction of the brain power of Jonah is more than willing. A satirical jab at Jonah? Oh yes. In fact, it's downright funny. First, the pagan sailors are better at respecting Jonah's life and the power of Jonah's God, and now so is a large fish. But also this, God appoints this creature not to terrify Jonah, but to save him. We see here God constraining Jonah to train Jonah, and it's not just Jonah that God deals with this way. Have you ever been going down a path and God has constrained you? God has put obstacles around you or narrowed the walls of your world. It's possible he's doing that to get your attention and it's absolutely certain that anywhere you find yourself, even and especially in a closed in space, he's out to work for your good. Jesus struck Paul blind, placing him in quite a constraint on the road to Damascus so that he could reveal his life purpose for Paul to Paul. And if you feel God's allowed you to be in a tight space with no wiggle room, consider that it may be for your deliverance, that God may be redirecting you, that he may be saving you from something for something else. Why not ask him? God knows that most of us want to be the star in our own tiny ego dramas, but God has an infinitely more significant role for you in this his big theodrama. 
So two of God's ways that spell hope for mankind, God respects Jonah's no, and he constrains him to train him. And now as Jonah reveals his ugly heart, God treats him with dignity. Let's see how. Sometime after the fish spits him out on land, Jonah does go to Nineveh. He seems to have changed. Maybe the whole storm and fish incident has worked a repentance in him. But has Jonah really changed? Well, at first we think so, but ah, the human heart, how tricky it is. Yes, Jonah goes, and all that we know is that he preaches the destruction of Nineveh, this great city, this city teeming with people. Not a bit of hope in the message he preaches, just a pithy proclamation of impending doom. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, he repeats as he walks around the huge city of sin. And yet, what to our wondering eyes should appear? These pagan Ninevites repent. They fast, don sackcloth, and saddle their animals with sackcloth. It seems the king even orders, in another humorous detail of the story, the animals to cry out to God. And God, who'd been compassionate to the desperate sailors on the cruise to Tarshish, sees that earnest repentance of the Ninevites and relents from the disaster about which he warned them. So it's not just Jonah that God rescues. He rescues this huge pagan city with its much cattle. We see here again God's great heart for the greater world. But back to Jonah. Has his heart changed? His reaction to God's compassion was anger. Whereas God is gracious to these whose great evil had come to his attention, Jonah thinks that God saving them is a great evil. It seems he was expecting with some glee to see these enemies of Israel destroyed, not spared. Some theologians who see a connection with this story to the prodigal son point out that Jonah played both son roles. In the first part of the story, the prophet is the disobedient son who walks away from the father. And then here at the latter end, he's the older brother, the son who benefited from being with the father all the time as Israel, the chosen people did, but who can't stand that the father forgives and wants to celebrate this return of the prodigal younger brother. So here again, in Jonah's favor, he's honest with God at the end of the story. We find out from his own lips in his prayer to God why he initially tried to get as far away as he could. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. More satire here. Jonah's got the list of God's character traits exactly right. His theology is right. The beautiful self-revelation of God to Moses from Exodus down pat. And that's why he fled, he says. He knew that God was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, overflowing with faithful love, able to be turned away from judgment. He knew God could save Nineveh, and Jonah didn't want that. He knows truth about God, but those truths have not yet been worked into his heart. And it's not just Jonah. Aren't we all like this? We know a lot more about our God than we are living out with God in our lives. Where does the hope of God's gracious ways appear here? Jonah is full of hatred and his heart is decidedly against God's plans, but God shows these beautiful characteristics that Jonah dislisted about God to undeserving Jonah. This part of the story is a bit reminiscent of Job. God treats Jonah as he does Job with great dignity. He doesn't ream Jonah out for his wicked heart or threaten him with destruction or just give up on him and ignore him as we might do. Instead, God asks him questions to further draw him out. 
not because God doesn't know what's in Jonah's heart, but because Jonah doesn't know what's in God's heart. He asked Jonah respectfully, do you have a right to be angry about my saving Nineveh? No answer from Jonah. So God sends him a living object lesson. He gives Jonah, who's presumably set up camp outside the city in hopes many scholars think that just maybe God will decide to destroy Nineveh after all. God causes a plant to grow over Jonah for shade and then appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it dies. Jonah is hopping mad about this. In God's final words in the book, two things, two things are happening. First, God is distinguishing himself from Jonah. Jonah is mad about his shady air conditioning vine being taken away. And God is pointing out to Jonah that his care is about something far more precious than this vine, human lives. But he is also, I think, trying to show Jonah that despite his failures, he is still made in the image of God and corresponds to God. He once again treats Jonah with dignity. Instead of saying, you ingrate, why weren't you thankful for the plant in the first place? He says that Jonah pitied the plant. Now, that was a really nice way of putting it. Maybe a little humor on the part of God, because Jonah was more pitying himself than the plant. He was angry, his shade was gone. But what God was doing here in effect was reminding Jonah of how he is like his creator. The Hebrew word for pity is the same when God uses it for Jonah as when God uses it to describe his own behavior. You have pity for this small plant that doesn't even know it exists, and I have pity for all these human beings who are so far astray and even on their animals. How gracious is God. In all this, he's raising up in dignity this selfish man and saying that you, Jonah, made in the image of God in spite of your disobedience to me and your hatred for the Ninevites, still correspond to me, that we are alike in sharing pity, you for a plant you had no power to create, and I for men I've created. God is owning Jonah here in spite of all your mind, and it's an incredible grace, this. It's the power to change Jonah's heart, and it's not just Jonah to whom he offers this. So does Jonah change? We don't know. It's an open-ended story, again, much like the prodigal son. Does the older brother repent finally and join in the celebration? We don't know. Why is the story left like this? Remember, it's a satire, a story designed to help us see past just Jonah and see ourselves in Jonah. I think it's open-ended to cause us to ponder how we each will respond to this. As the New Living Translation puts it in Romans 2.4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? How will you and I respond to this God? He respects Jonah's choice, his no, but he continues to bring about his purposes through him. And for those of us who aren't honest about our no's, he can help us to own up to our need for honesty with ourselves and God so that God can make us a blessing. He restrains Jonah by means of his unlikely servant, the big fish, and it's all for Jonah's great good and deliverance. And finally, when the pus of sin in Jonah's heart really spills out, God treats him with dignity, the man who didn't deserve it, and reminds Jonah that he's still crafted in the image of God. What about you? Jesus is there right now knocking on the door of your life. Will you turn the handle and open the door so that his Holy Spirit can enter and work tenderly and deeply on your heart? Remember, it's not just Jonah that this story is about.